We're preaching through this series called My Daily Battle. What we did was we kind of took a poll of what are the things that people struggle with or battle on a daily basis. And we came up with the top six, and we're going to preach through them one by one. The first, a few weeks ago, we talked about depression. Uh, the second in the series was sexual temptation, which is a battle for a lot of people. Then we did anxiety. Uh, last week, Mike talked about anger. And this morning, I'm going to be talking about the daily battle with regret and disappointment, which is something that a lot of us have dealt with at one time or another. Is anybody, everybody familiar with the movie called The Bucket List? Anybody seen that movie? Okay, if, you're, if you're not familiar with it, it's, um, it's a story of two men, two kind of older guys, I guess they're maybe about 60 or so, and they, they both meet because they're getting cancer treatments together. And, um, and then as the course of getting their cancer treatments, they're kind of confronted with their own mortality, and they come up with this list of things that they like to do before they kick the bucket, and it becomes their bucket list. And I guess it happens that one of them happens to be very wealthy, and so he finances this trip so they can do all these things on their bucket list. And most of it's like traveling to exotic places, going to Africa and safari and the Pacific Islands and all kind of stuff. And, um, and that, that movie really hit a chord with a lot of people, didn't it? I mean, the term bucket list has really sort of become part of our cultural vocabulary, right? I mean, if somebody says, oh, that sounds like a great thing to do, I'm going to put that on my bucket list. We all know what that means, right? The list of things you want to do before you die. And, you know, there's nothing at all wrong with wanting to go different places and experience different things and try new things and inject some variety into life. There's nothing wrong with that. But if this bucket list kind of turns into a, just sort of a compulsive quest to inject some meaning into an otherwise boring, unfulfilled life, then I think a line has been crossed into regret. I think if a, a bucket list that's a little too long could be an indicator of a life poorly lived and a life full of regret and disappointment, and so now I've got to do all this stuff before I die to make up for this unfulfilled life I've had up till now. This morning we're talking about regret and disappointment. So first of all, what, what do we mean when we say regret? What does regret mean? Well, regret in a nutshell means wishing that we had made different choices, right? We, you know, we do things or we don't do things, and we look back at the decision we made and you say, you know, I wish I had done something other than that. You know, I wish I hadn't done this thing that I did that made a wreck out of my life, or I wish I had done something that maybe I had an opportunity to do, or I wish, you know, I was confronted with two choices and I wish I had chosen one and not the other, but regret is basically wishing that we had made different choices. A disappointment is related. Disappointment, in a nutshell, is basically wishing that our expectations had been met. Right, you know, we, we get into some kind of line of work or get into a relationship or maybe even a marriage, uh, pursue some kind of work or even ministry, and we go through it and it's just not what we expect. And we thought it was going to be this and it was that and we feel let down. Our expectations weren't met and we're disappointed. And sometimes that can happen a lot and it becomes sort of a state of being where we're just constantly disappointed that things aren't what I thought they were going to be. So what these two things have in common, regret and disappointment, is basically wishing life was different. If you're experiencing regret or disappointment, basically you look at your life and you say, boy, I wish my life was different than it is. And so that's what we're going to talk about this morning. It's just, you know, a lot of us go through that. You know, we, we go through life and things happen, circumstances, choices, and we look at our life and we say, 
you know, what, what the heck? I wish things were different than they were. Let's talk about regret for a minute. Regret can take some different forms, right? One kind of regret is when you say, say, boy, I wish I hadn't done that. You know, you did something, and you say, I wish I hadn't done that. And that's, you know, think of people who perhaps have been, you know, maybe addicted to alcohol or drugs or something. And they say, you know, boy, I wish I'd never taken that first drink. You know, I wish I'd never shot up that first time. Or even something else, you know, maybe... You know, maybe I wish, I wish I'd never looked at that first pornographic image. Or, you know, maybe a married man says, boy, I wish I'd never had that first conversation with my secretary, which led to a second, which led to an affair, which train wrecked my marriage. You, you, just, you wish you hadn't done that. You know, I wish I'd never even started down that path that has made such a train wreck out of my life. No? Some of you may have gone through that. Some of you may be going through that now. It's regret. Just, I wish I hadn't started down this path that totally wrecked my life. Another kind of regret is saying, I wish I had done that. And that's more like missed opportunities. You know, if you, like let's say you see somebody in need and somebody has a need and you say, you know, I, I have the ability to help this person and I'm available and I just don't for whatever reason. And you say, man, I should have helped that person. I wish I had helped that person. Or maybe... Maybe we're building a relationship with somebody, maybe a coworker, a neighbor, and that person kind of hand delivers us an opportunity to preach the gospel. Maybe they're being vulnerable about something. There's something going on in their life, and they're kind of looking to us as someone to talk to, and we have the good news of Christ on the tip of our tongue, and we just hedge. And we look back and go, man, I should have spoken there. I should have said something about Jesus in that situation. That happens sometimes. We see an opportunity to do something good, and for whatever reason, we don't take it. And we go, man, I wish I had done that. And then another kind of regret is when we're kind of presented with two choices, and we choose one and not the other, and life goes on, and we look back and say, you know, I wish I had chosen the other thing instead of what I did choose. Now, that comes up a lot with, like, like trying to balance career and family, right? Some people decide, you know, maybe you're young and you just get out of college and you say, I'm going to pursue my career for a while. I'm not really going to think about family right now. I'm just going to laser focus on my career, which is not, you know, there's nothing wrong with having a career, of course, but sometimes people do that and then years go by and they look back and they say, boy, this, man, I really wish I had paid more attention to the people in my life and maybe trying to build personal relationships instead of being so laser focused on my career. Or, you know, ministry, you know, when I, when I was in seminary, or the professors of the seminary I went to, they really beat us over the head with this, and I'm glad they did. They're like, look, guys, if you guys are married, don't burn out your wives and your family. And I even, the dean of the seminary once in chapel said, he said, guys, sometimes you got to take a B and spend time with your wife instead of taking an A and burn your family. And so, and they had tales, boy, they had tales of pastors that they knew that they had mentored who had got so consumed with ministry that they totally burned out their wives and their kids. And so... But that's a choice people make. There's nothing wrong with pastoring a church, of course. But sometimes when choices compete with each other, people make certain choices and they look back and they wish they had chosen differently and maybe balanced things a little better. So those are different kinds of regrets. And there may be others like that. But I mean, you all know what I'm talking about, right? When we look at the choices we made in life and we think, man, I wish I had chosen differently. Let's talk about disappointment. Now, disappointment can take a few different forms. Sometimes, you know, we get disappointed because we try to do something and it just doesn't turn out the way we thought it was going to turn out, right? Um, 
Before my family moved to Syracuse, I was actually part of a church planting team in New York City. And there were myself and two other pastors and our coach, there's four of us, and we went to New York and we were going to try and plant a church in Astoria, Queens. And we spent a few years doing that. And we had a group of people we were working with and we were trying to do this work. And unfortunately, the church did not grow and never really grew. There was a little bit of dysfunction among some of the team members and some other circumstances happened and we, my family had to leave New York City and we moved here. And then about a year after I left, the lead pastor, he left New York also. He's pastoring in Pennsylvania now. But that church we were trying to plant, it never grew. It never took hold. And that was very disappointing for all of us. We thought we were going ahead with this work that God had given us, and we did what we did, and it didn't work. And that was a pretty, pretty major disappointment. Um, now, sometimes, sometimes disappointment happens when things do turn out exactly the way we planned. Sometimes disappointment is things don't work out. Sometimes disappointment is they do work out, but we leave us feeling totally unfulfilled afterwards. You hear that from professional athletes a lot, right? You know, professional athletes, you know, they, from the time they're seven, eight years old, they figure out that they're good at this sport. You know, they play baseball or basketball or soccer or whatever, and, you know, they spend all this time and years, you know, advancing to the next skill level and, you know, high school and college and professional, and they finally get on a pro team that's good, and they make a run at it, and they win the championship. You know, they win the World Series, they win the Super Bowl or whatever it is. They win their gold medal in the Olympics, and it's the greatest triumph of their life. They did what they wanted to do. They accomplished their goal. They're the best. They're the champions. And the next day, they look around, and they go, is that it? Like, now what? Let's do it again next year. Okay, oh, great. You know, sometimes things do work out exactly the way you plan, but it leaves you feeling totally unfulfilled inside. Or um, I don't know if you're familiar with a man named Charles Colson. Charles Colson's with the Lord now. He's the one who started a thing called Prison Fellowship back in the 1970s. Before he did that, Charles Colson was part of President Nixon's inner circle. And uh, he, was the, he was actually the, the primary campaign strategist for Nixon's re-election campaign. And if you know history, Nixon's re-election campaign, despite all the Watergate stuff, Nixon won re-election in one of the biggest landslides in American history. And so Charles Colson, was at, he, he was at the top of his life. You know, he had gotten somebody elected president. It was the peak of his accomplishments. And by his own testimony, you can read his book, by his own testimony, the next day after election night, he was just totally empty inside, like numb. And he couldn't figure out why. It's like, I did it. I did it. I did what I wanted to do. And why am I so empty inside? Sometimes disappointment is when things do turn out the way we plan, but we end up feeling totally empty about inside. And then the other kind of disappointment is when just people don't live up to our expectations. And I think probably the best example of that is marriage, Right? You know, married people, you know, we all, we all went into it with a mental picture of how it was going to be, right? And we probably all figured it was going to be pretty much exactly the way it was when we were dating, right? And then we found out differently. And it's just, it can be disappointing. And we have to figure out how to resolve that disappointment when this person that we married turns out to not quite be the person they thought we were going to be when we got married. I can see the smile, some of you going through that. Or parenting, same thing. Parents... We all had a mental picture of parenting before we had kids, right? Oh, my kids are going to do this and this and this, and my kids are not going to do this and not going to do this, and my kids are going to be so well-disciplined that every time I open my mouth, it's going to be, yes, Father. <laughs> and we come to find out, oh, these kids have minds of their own. Where'd that come from? And that can be disappointing when child-rearing turns out to not quite be what we thought it was going to be. So, this, you know, regret, disappointment... 
things don't turn out the way we plan, things aren't quite up to our expectations, or we look at our choices and we say, boy, I wish I had made some different choices in life. A lot of you are going through that. Maybe you've gone through it in the past, maybe you're going through it right now, uh, having to live with your choices or having to live with disappointments. Well, what does the Bible have to say about this? That's why we're here. What's the Bible have to say about this? Well, the answer, the biblical answer to regret and disappointment is this sort of nebulous biblical virtue called contentment. Now, contentment is one of these things that's not very easy to define. So I'm going to take a couple of cracks at it, and I hope it'll kind of make sense. Uh, first of all, contentment is not apathy, right? Contentment is not saying, I'm fine, I don't care about anybody else, I'm just going to do my thing, I don't care about the rest of the world, or I don't care, you know, it's, it's not, ap that's not what contentment is, it's not apathy. And contentment is not complacency either. And that can be a little tricky because contentment is not saying, I like things just the way they are, I don't want to change, I don't want to grow, I don't want to do anything different, let's just keep it like this, I'm content. That's not contentment either. That's just complacency and sometimes laziness. One way to define contentment is, is like this. If you think about the, um, the Tenth Commandment, you shall not covet. What does coveting mean? Coveting is when we desire something that somebody else has. You know, like if, I'm, if I see a woman who's married to somebody else and say, I want her. Well, I'm not going to get her because she's already been given to somebody else and somebody else has already been given to me. So if I want something that God has given to somebody else that God's not going to give to me, that's coveting. You know, coveting is selfishly desiring for ourselves what God has given somebody else. Contentment is unselfishly accepting what God has given us. So contentment is kind of the opposite of coveting. Coveting is wanting what God gave somebody else that I'm not going to get. Contentment is receiving from God what God has given me. So that's kind of one way to think of it. It's kind of the opposite of coveting. And, you know, if we're, if we're going through regret and disappointment, it's very tempting to wish we were like somebody else. Oh, I wish I was like John Piper. I wish I was like whoever. And that's really kind of a covetous way of looking at it. Contentment is accepting what God has given us instead of wanting what God is not going to give us because he's given to somebody else. Another way to think of contentment is this. Contentment is understanding who we are and where we are in God's plan. Contentment is understanding who we are and where we are in God's plan. What does that mean? Well, who are we in God's plan? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then your sins have been forgiven. Every sin, every wrong choice, every bad thing that you've ever done has been forgiven. Because Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead, we're forgiven. We're freed from the power of sin. Now, we're not necessarily free from the consequences of sin, mind you, but we are free from the power of sin. But sometimes, you know, sometimes we experience the consequences of sin, like King David when King David committed these sins of adultery and murder, which were capital offenses, by the way, God forgave him. David repented of those sins and God forgave him. But part of the consequence of that sin was the prophet told David, the sword shall never depart from your house, meaning there were all these blood feuds among David's children and even an actual coup d'etat by David's son Absalom that forced him to leave Jerusalem for a while till the army could get together and restore order. So... 
But then if you look at Scripture, David was not identified as the adulterer after God's own heart. David was the man after God's own heart. Sin was not his identity. It was something that he had done wrong and he was forgiven of. But because God had forgiven him, sin was no longer his identity. And as Christians, sin is not our identity. Our bad choices that we may have made in the past are not our identity. Our identity is children of the living God. Now also, because we're children of the living God, not only is our sin not our identity, our good works are not our identity either. You know, a lot of, the reason a lot of times we feel so unfulfilled when we accomplish our goals is we've placed all our identity in that. You know, I'm, you know, we placed all our identity in our work or in our marriage or in being a parent or being, even being a minister sometimes, and that becomes our identity. And that's what leaves us feeling so unfulfilled. And we accomplish all our goals and we're like, now what? <clears throat> now what is that was never supposed to be our identity in the first place. Our identity is we're followers of Christ and we belong to him. We're part of his family. So who we are is, if you follow Christ, you're a child of the living God. We're not defined by our bad choices, and we're not defined by our good works. We're defined by who we are in relationship to God, through Jesus Christ. Now where we are is when God saves us, when we place our faith in Christ, when we're forgiven of our sins, God begins this process. He begins this process of making us progressively more and more like Jesus Christ. It's this fancy theological word called sanctification. God begins this process of making us more and more like Christ. We start here, it's going to end here. When we go to be with Jesus, that process is going to be completed. But every one of us is on that path somewhere, right? And every one of us is at different points along this path. You know, I've, I've been a Christian probably longer than some of you have been alive. And some of you have been Christians longer than I've been alive. And some of you maybe have only been following Christ for a little while. But wherever you are, we're all somewhere on this path towards becoming like Christ, and God has brought us there. We're not there by accident. We're somewhere on this path. And whenever we have disappointments in other people, if people don't quite meet our expectations, it might be worth remembering that that other person is somewhere along the path too. We're not all the way there yet in becoming totally like Christ, and neither are they. So if people don't quite live up to our expectations, it might be worth considering because all of us are in this process, and God has brought us there, and God is going to bring us the rest of the way. We're going to look at Philippians in another couple minutes. And in Philippians 1, Paul tells his audience, <clears throat> you know, the one who began the good work in you, the one who brought you to faith, is going to bring that work to completion until the day of Christ. You know, we, we went through Hebrews a while ago. Hebrews, Jesus is referred to as the author and perfecter of our faith. So this process that we're on of becoming like Christ, we're not there yet. We're somewhere along the way, and God has brought us there. And we need to understand where we are, that we're not all the way there yet, and we may not be as far along as other people that we look at, but we're right where we are, where God has brought us. And that's contentment, understanding who we are and where we are in God's process. If you have a Bible, we're going to take a look at Philippians for a few minutes, and it'll be on the screen also. Uh, the letter to the Philippians uh, has a lot of themes running through, but one of the themes that it has running through it is contentment. Uh, Paul is writing this letter to a church that he had planted several years before. And by the way, when I, um, when I was growing up in church, I, uh, every Sunday there would be readings, and the person at the front would say, this is a reading of this. And whenever I heard that there was going to be a reading from Paul to the Philippians, I was always impressed that Paul could send letters all the way to the Philippines. I'm like, wow, that's impressive. 
before I knew it was about the city of Philippi. I thought he was writing to Christians in Manila or something. But anyway, um, but Paul, <clears throat> Paul's writing to this uh, church that he planted in a city called Philippi. Uh, you can read all about that in Acts chapter 16 if you'd like sometime on your own. And Paul's writing this letter from prison. Um, at the very end of the book of Acts, Paul, who had been charged with several crimes, had appealed his case to the emperor. He had appealed to Caesar, which every Roman citizen was allowed to do. And so Paul had been taken by boat to Rome in order to have his case be heard by Caesar. And at the end of the book of Acts, it says Paul stayed in Rome two whole years in his own rented house, what we would call house arrest, waiting for his case to be heard by the emperor. And during that two-year stretch is when he wrote this letter to the Philippians. So if you have, uh, you have Philippians, we're going to look at uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 to 13. <clears throat> Paul says to them, <clears throat> he says, Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, I'll, I'll spare you the theological rant about how much people take the last verse of that out of context, but the substance of it is that Paul, writing from a prison, for, writing from a state of imprisonment, is letting the Philippians know that he's learned how to be content in whatever set of circumstances that he finds himself. And Paul, in his life, in his ministry, pretty well ran the whole gamut of financial circumstances. Now, there were times in Paul's life where he was actually pretty well off, like when he was in Philippi. Uh, according to extra-biblical history, the city of Philippi was kind of an affluent place. It was, a place. it was originally a place for retired Roman soldiers who were very well paid. And so the people who lived in Philippi, for the most part, had money and had means. And it was no trouble for Lydia, the high-end textile merchant, to take Paul and his people into her house and for them to financially provide for Paul, it, that was no big deal for them because they were people who had money. And so in a place like Philippi, Paul didn't need to work a day job. He was provided for. He could just focus on preaching the gospel and building the church. Now, a place like Corinth, that was a little different kind of a deal. In a place like Corinth, the socioeconomic spectrum was wider, and even though Paul had the right to call on the church to support him, when he was in Corinth, Paul worked as a tradesman all day, making tents in order to financially provide for himself because he didn't want to be a hindrance to the gospel. So he could have called upon the church to support him. He said, no, I'm not going to do that. For the sake of the gospel, I'll just make tents all day and provide for myself financially. So it's like Corinth, Paul had to work for himself. Then there were times where Paul was incarcerated more than once. And in those situations, Paul had no freedom to do anything other than just be incarcerated and depend on the provision of others. So Paul pretty well ran the whole spectrum of circumstances. And, you know, Paul had learned how to be content because he was able to see God's purpose in them. And not only was it Paul, you know, he was able to see God's purpose. You know, if, if he's well provided for, great. One less thing to worry about. I'll just focus on preaching the gospel and leading people to Christ. If Paul had to work a day job, okay, I'll work a day job as long as the gospel's not hindered. I'm okay with that. I'll make tents and I'll preach the gospel and build a church. And if Paul was incarcerated, well, Share the gospel with the guards. You know, a little bit earlier in Philippians, Paul tells his audience, he says, yeah, I know you're all concerned about me, but look, this has been a gospel opportunity. The entire imperial Praetorian guard 
knows why I'm here. The only way they could have known is if Paul told him. So even being incarcerated turned into an opportunity for the gospel for Paul. So no matter what set of circumstances Paul was in, he was able to see God's purpose in it. And that, I think, was the key to him being content. Now, not only was Paul content in any set of circumstances, Paul was content whether he lived or died. Uh, if you can flip back to Philippians 1, uh, starting at verse 19, might be familiar verses, but, but hear them again. Philippians 1.19 and following. <clears throat> for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, which is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. So not only was Paul content whether he was rich, poor, or incarcerated, Paul was content whether he lived or died. And, you know, I don't think Paul was emotionally unstable. I don't think he needed to be on suicide watch. I think he just understood God's purpose in all of this. You know, he, he was aware of the fact that someday he was going to depart and be with Christ and be away from all this sin and all this labor and imprisonment and all this other stuff. So, yeah, I'd be up for that. But he said, I think God's probably going to keep me around here for a while so I can do more of this work that I'm doing. And Paul was okay with that. So Paul was okay continuing his work of planting churches and sharing the gospel. And he was more than okay with just going right now to be with Christ. So Paul was content whether he lived or died. And, you know, this, <clears throat> this letter has a little bit different tone to it than like 2 Timothy. You know, according to early church history, Paul actually was exonerated in his first hearing before Caesar. And he, did, he was freed and he did do some more work. But then later on he was imprisoned again and eventually martyred. And that was when he wrote 2 Timothy. And if you don't have to turn there now, but the very end of 2 Timothy, which is believed to be Paul's last letter, it almost sounds like Paul's writing his own epitaph, right? You know, I have fought the good fight. I've finished the race. I've kept the faith. There's a crown of glory waiting for me. In 2 Timothy, Paul was pretty sure he wasn't getting out. But even then, you know, Paul didn't sound like a guy in need of a bucket list. He's like, I did what God brought me here to do. Glory be to God. And so Paul was content whether he lived or died. And again, the reason Paul was content is whatever set of circumstances he was in, or <clears throat> even whether he lived or died, he was able to see God's purpose in all of that. If I go to be with Christ, well, that's where I'm going anyway. If I get to stay here, it means more gospel work. If I'm well provided for, I can focus. If I have to work for a living, I'm not hindering the gospel. If I'm in prison, share the gospel with the guards. Wherever he was at, whether he lived or died, he was able to see God's purpose in all of it. So what, is this, what do we take from this? What do we take from this? I think what we take from it is this. A lot of us you know, live with regret. We live with the choices we make or we live with this disappointment that we've experienced. You know, regret says, you know, we will, regret is saying, you know, I wish I'd made different choices. 
Contentment is saying, I wish I made different choices, but God's going to work through whatever I did choose. You know, contentment says, you know, I might wish my life were different, but God's going to use me right where I am. You know, think about regret for a second. You know, I mentioned, you know, if, if someone, let's say, was an addict, an alcoholic or a drug addict, if that person places their faith in Christ and they are able to overcome their addiction, what's the first group of people that that person usually wants to reach out to? Other addicts, right? They, the first place they want to go is back to other people who are experiencing addiction and say, man, I've been where you are. Where you're going, you're going to destroy yourself, and the only way out of it is by knowing Christ. That, you know, now, that addict may wish he'd never taken a drink or may wish he'd never used drugs, but God can still use those choices for his purposes anyway because God uses everything. That's the short version of Romans 8.28. Or, you know, I knew this guy in college. Uh, his name was Brandon, a uh, fraternity guy. Loved to party, loved to drink, you know, that whole lifestyle. And somebody shared the gospel with him and he got saved. And he told me once, he said, he said, you know, I, I walked, he would walk through the, the, whole, the section of campus where all the fraternity houses were, it was called Locust Walk. Walk down Locust Walk, where all the Friday, he would walk down there on a Friday night and see all these people, he was drunk out of their minds, partying, doing this thing, and he would, he would walk into any frat house he saw and try and talk to people. Anybody you could talk, he could talk to who was coherent enough, he would try to share the gospel with that guy because that's what God saved him from. I'm sure he wished he never got into it in the first place, but he understood the fact that he could minister there despite that because that's what God saved him from. So we may have made choices that we regret, but God can still use us anyway. God can still use those choices in his overall purpose. Or, you know, disappointment. You know, I mentioned before, you know, I, was, I was part of a church planting team, and that church plant didn't work. And that still is very disappointing. But one of the things that I had to learn how to do while I was in New York City is I actually had to learn how to sing and lead worship in Portuguese and Spanish. Because we had a, a multilingual church, a lot of Brazilians and Hispanic people. And so since I was the music leader, I had to learn how to sing <clears throat> in other languages. Now, when we came to Syracuse, I kind of thought, well, gee, that was interesting. That chapter's over. But then <clears throat> about seven, eight months ago, I kind of find out that Missio is supporting and partnering with this brand new church that consists mostly of Cubans, Cuban refugees, and other Hispanic people. And they don't really have any worship leaders, so they kind of need people who can lead worship in Spanish. Well, ding, 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 ding. I can do that. I did it every Sunday for two years. Made some connections. I got together with Pastor Rainier, and now you know, Gloria and I go down there every few weeks, and we lead worship in Spanish. So even disappointments that we've been through <clears throat> can still be part of God's purpose because, like I said, you know, God's purpose is bigger than our choices. And even the regrets and the disappointments can still be used for his purpose going forward, even if we wish we'd never done that in the first place. Now, I want to just kind of leave you with one thing. Um, you know, we're talking about regret and disappointment. Um, there's a verse... In 1 Corinthians, in chapter 15, uh, where Paul is kind of um, explaining the gospel to people and explaining the resurrection appearances. And Paul says something to the Corinthians I think is very profound and very helpful for us. Paul said to the Corinthians, By the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace towards me was not in vain. Now, like I said, we may... We may be tempted to wish we were in a different situation. We may be tempted to wish we'd made different choices. But by the grace of God, 
we are what we are, and his grace was not in vain. I would even add to that, by the grace of God, we are where we are. God has put us where we are by his grace, and his grace towards us was not in vain. No matter what choices you've made, no matter what consequences you may be going through, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're in, God has a plan for your life that's bigger than all that. By God's grace, he has made us who we are, and he has put us where we are for his purpose. By God's grace, we are what we are, and his grace was not in vain. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have a plan and a purpose that's bigger than any of us. It's bigger than any of our individual mistakes or choices or sins. You've saved us by your death and resurrection on the cross, and you've begun making us like Christ. You've done that, and we praise you for that. And you're going to be faithful and continue that work and bring it to completion as you promised. So I pray that we would be able to see that in the midst of our regrets, in the midst of our disappointments, in the midst of things we wish we hadn't done, the things we wish we had. Help us to see your purpose in all of this. <clears throat> that by your grace, we are who we are, and we are where we are. And your grace is not in vain. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.